This week's TribCast is sponsored by George H.W. Bush, the nation's 41st president, opened the Bush School of Government and Public Service on the Texas A&M University campus in 1993. This fall, the university will expand its reach to our nation's capital because public service is a noble calling. Find out more at bush.tamu.edu. And the Feeding Texas Network is the largest hunger relief organization in Texas. Donate at feedingtexas.org COVID-19 to support people facing hunger and the food banks who help them. And welcome to the May 13th edition of the Texas Tribune TribCast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by Justice and Politics reporter Emma Plato. Hi there. Managing editor Matthew Watkins, who you can't see, but his beard is making up for the hair he lost up top to a seven-year-old terracot. <laughs> Hello. And executive editor Ross Ramsey. Speaking of haircuts, we have to apologize for giving uh, Mike Lang a haircut last week when we met Steve oh, Toth. Yeah. So fixed. I'm out. Forgot about that. Yes, thank you, Ross. Good, good. I was on me. I was the one who first made that mistake. The hair beat. So we regret I, the air. Speaking of of hair and errors, I actually cut my own hair this weekend, but I don't think it ended up being as much of an error. I think it came out pretty. It looks well. great, actually. Wait, didn't yeah, Ross? Didn't say. you cut your hair too? I did. I did. I got the hedge clippers out and. Um, <laughs> That, yeah, it that makes well. me the only heathen on this call, I guess. But I do it now. <laughs> live, live, live haircut. Right. Yeah. How about only this? if your seven-year-old will do it. Yeah, that's that's a deal. <laughs> I was gonna say we should trade a live Emma haircut by getting to see uh, Matthew's haircut that he still wants. Okay, I'll take. I'll take <laughs> oh wow! That's some short hair. Oh my gosh, you look like another person. I love that. She was bold. You know, that, she was prepared to take risks. That took a lot of bravery because Alexa is a known hater of men's haircuts. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not a known hater of men's haircuts. I just, I don't like fresh men's haircuts. I like two days after a haircut, you look good, but the day of, not great. <laughs> My dad uh, let me paint his toenails when I was little, so just throwing that out there as a you know an activity. This has really gotten off the rails. I know. I think, I think we probably we've probably shaken off all but two or three listeners by now. <laughs> we okay. can proceed. It's gotten off the rails, but not so much because we're still on theme when it comes to hair. Because sure. this week is a sort of uh, don't do as I say edition of the cast. Let's back up to the end of last week when a Dallas salon owner who defied orders to keep her business closed during the pandemic was jailed and then released after an outcry from the right. Emma, do you want to catch us up here? Yeah, so Shelly Luther is the owner of um, Salon a la Mode in Dallas. And in mid to late April, she decided that she was going to reopen in open defiance of um, state and local orders that, was, that were keeping businesses closed at that time. So she did that, and uh, there was a huge kind of media circus, as you would imagine. Uh, there was a GoFundMe page launched for her that raised just over half a million dollars. And ultimately, she was held in contempt of court by a Dallas judge, a Democrat, um, and sentenced to seven days in jail. Very shortly into that sentence, we saw kind of a full-fledged effort from Republicans in all three branches of government 
two of her attorneys were well-connected Republicans. One of them is a member of the Texas House, and one of them is a member of the state Republican Executive Committee. They filed an emergency appeal to the all-Republican Texas Supreme Court, which ultimately released her. And there was also some statements from Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton and Governor Greg Abbott, who kind of both rebuked this Dallas judge, saying, you took this too far, and this woman should never have been jailed. Um, the Dallas judge might have pointed out that, you know, the, the basis, the reason she was even in his courtroom in the first place was the governor's executive order and, and local orders and mandating that businesses close down and the governor's order, as he has repeated several times in his packs and has repeated several times in different contexts, at that time carried um, the potential for up to 180 days in jail and a, and a pretty hefty fight as well. So, you know, facing this pressure, the governor revises his own order to basically bar criminal prosecutions based on violations of his orders. But, like, how do we not go through this entire ordeal and and not think that we do now have kind of this broader tension with Abbott's orders, right? Because how does anyone comply with any of them after this incident? Well, you know, he put the judge out on the plank on this thing. Eric Moye, the state district judge in Dallas, who was the judge who found Luther, uh, sent Luther to jail for contempt of court, was basically within the, you know, within the corners of Abbott's orders. And rather than just admonish him for being too tough with his sentence, which, you know, probably was in bounds, Abbott changed his orders and he predated them by two or three weeks uh, in order to catch all the previous cases, including sort of infamously two beauticians in Laredo who had been busted two weeks before with no fanfare from Republican officials. Yeah, I mean, you know, There's, I don't think we, I was going to say, I don't think we can necessarily get inside the head of Abbott and Patrick and say how much Shelley Luther had to do with the kind of reversal of these two state officials, you know, um, really only they know the answer to that. But um, I mean, it's pretty undeniable that this, has really kind of changed the tenor of the conversation um, around, uh, you know, these stay-at-home orders and, uh, you know, the enforcement of them and all these kinds of things. Uh, you know, I was telling Emma and I were joking earlier that uh, she's really kind of become kind of the Joe the plumber of this issue. She's, uh, you know, like, it started out as this kind of, you know, talk about her personal business. I think there's, there are some questions, you know, about how politically minded this was from the beginning, but like she has really, you know, just this morning, she was at a, at a, um, uh, rally in Laredo about this issue, you know, uh, an issue that has kind of already been decided. In this. Um, and it's, it really seems to be something that, uh, is, has continued to kind of gain the attention of both our state leaders and kind of just the, the political world out there. Yeah, and while we can't say, um, you know, I, I think it wouldn't be fair, as Matthew said, we can't really get in the minds of our state leaders. We do know that Shelley Luther was one of the salon owners that the governor's task force called upon for guidance. Um, on April 27th, the governor said, you know, we're going to go ahead and allow restaurants and malls to open in a limited capacity. We're not going to open hair salons because we, you know, we don't think that there's a way to safely do that, given how close uh, a stylist must be to a customer, you know, necessarily. And that day, Shelley Luther was already open and operating, and the governor's task force reached out to her. She ultimately had a phone call with, I believe, James Huffines, who's the head of the governor's kind of um, committee looking at reopening issues, and was asked, you know, Shelley, what do you think? How can we do this safely? And ultimately, 
Luther and, and many who agree with her got what they wanted when the governor reopened salons earlier than expected. You know, it's funny, we, um, Alex Samuels, one of our reporters, went out on Friday to, to kind of visit these hair salons when they opened. And, and she found that uh, there was a, a lot of pent-up demand. I mean, we just talked about how three of us have given ourselves haircuts um, right now. You know, when, when malls opened a week earlier, um, shopping centers and things like that, you know, the, the big reports were that there weren't big crowds. The, um, the same true of restaurants. You know, the restaurants are allowed to operate at 25% capacity right now. There's been some evidence from the... Um, the you know open tables and some of those like restaurant reservation services that um, they're not even really reaching that uh, limit of twenty five percent capacity. But the haircuts were things that people seemed to really want, and uh, you know haircutters reporting lines you know being booked for days once these restrictions were lifted. So it's clearly something that has kind of struck a chord with people in maybe somewhat of a surprising way. Yeah, but I do think you know. I realize it's easy for for me to say this as someone who hasn't lost any income in in all of this, but the the idea of something being in demand is very different to the orders that are being put into place in order to protect public health, right? I mean, and and the like open defiance of them because I keep thinking about you know the the perils of the politicization of the state's response to this. Ultimately, this ended up being this sort of Republican versus Democrat thing with Republican state officials, um, you know, particularly Ken Paxton, the AG, really criticizing the Democratic judge who was oversaw this case. But, you know, when you think about the politicization of this one instance and the broader politicization we've seen, in the, eventually Abbott, you know, got this pressure from the right on all of his stay-at-home orders, all of these closures. They've been there throughout, but is the manifestation of that tension in this one instance going to impede future efforts from holding up? You know, if we, where does this leave the governor's authority if we end up with a second wave of coronavirus cases that requires a second set of closures? Is he going to have any authority to push for those closures after these sort of incidents. It's hard to enforce something unless you have an or else, you know, do this or else X will happen to you. And you take away the or else, you know, you take away your, your enforcement power. You know, I think more importantly here is he let them shout him down. He didn't just say the jailing of Shelley Luther was, you know, went too far. He said, in essence, my order went too far. You know, she didn't violate, you know, she, she was going at the governor's authority on this and, and the people around her in particular were going after his authority to tell them to stay home or not do this or not do that. And he said, okay, peace, I'm not going to do that anymore. So, you know, if you get a second wave or some reason for the state to come back and say, really, you need to do X or Y or Z in answer to this pandemic, people are going to say, in their own forms, or else what? And, and I think it's fair to point out that, um, you know, all of the governor's executive orders up to this point have carried this kind of threat, right? They all say that these orders carry the force of law, and if you violate, then you are subject to this fine and this potential jail time. And up until this salon issue and the, and the kind of prominence of the Shelley Luther case, we really haven't seen Republican state officials shy away from that enforcement power. 
particularly earlier on in this, when we were having a debate about whether abortion providers um, could be performing abortions during the pandemic, given kind of some restrictions around elective medical procedures, the state officials were more than happy to brandish the enforcement power. And, you know, at that point, it wasn't something that they thought went too far. It was something they were more than happy to promote. So I think it is fair to ask the question of, um, you know, when when is this appropriate? When are we seeing it's appropriate? And what can we expect people to do if we have now said, OK, we don't think that this original penalty we laid out is actually is actually fair? The other thing that's really gelled in the last week is the transformation of a lot of the conversation about the pandemic and what to do about it from a, you know, sort of everybody pulling in the same direction to much more of a partisan argument about, you know, whether the government can do this or not. And, you know, what the Democrats think about this and what the Republicans think. Think back several weeks, there were some partisan differences in this, but most of the conversation was not uh, kind of framed by, well, you're just a Democrat or, well, you're just a Republican. Uh, And it seems to be much more the case now, particularly after uh, the hair episode. Yeah, and I think Luther is a really good proxy for that, right? If you think that Shelley Luther is a protester whose act of civil disobedience kind of uh, belied the the unfair actions of government, then you're probably on one side of the aisle, right? If you think that Shelley Luther is a privileged business owner who convinced the governor to kind of retreat from his own order because she wouldn't follow the rules, then you're probably on the other side of the aisle. Well, before we, we move on, the, the other thing I wanted to to get to was the, this Paxton uh, involvement. You know, he had called for Luther's release in the letter to the state district judge, even though his own office had made clear to judges that Abbott's reopening orders did not include hair salons. And, you know, he got this sort of pretty pointed response from, what was it, 12 state civil district judges? I believe it was every state district judge in Dallas uh, who signed on to a letter. They're all Democrats because this is, you know, a Dallas County elected position. But they basically said, we think your involvement is inappropriate. You know, you're not a party to this case and you don't really have the right as a state attorney general to come in and essentially try to intimidate an elected official. Um, There's a process, obviously, in the court system for appealing decisions that you think are wrong, right? And that's ultimately what happened. But they were saying that Paxton's kind of weighing in in this case was was really inappropriate. It was a a judicial version of a stay-in-your-lane letter. And, And in the meantime, I think, you know, we still have further questions to come about how much more reopening the state feels comfortable with, you know, um, we haven't heard from governor Abbott this week. We haven't really heard from him since the hair salons have opened. We're, we're starting to kind of have enough time now where we might get an indication of what this first wave of reopening is. But when Abbott, you know, made his first announcements that didn't include hair salons, but talked about movie theaters and, uh, malls and, and restaurants and all that kind of thing, he, he highlighted the date of May 18th as kind of like the possible, like, we'll look at whether how things have been going and what the next wave will look like. That next wave he talked about at the time was kind of expanding capacity from 25% to 50%. And, uh, you know, he has not said anything to reaffirm that lately because he hasn't been giving his, you know, he hasn't given a press conference this week, which is a bit unusual compared to what he's done in uh, past weeks and months since this crisis has happened. Um, 
so he hasn't backed away from it, but he also hasn't supported it. So I think there's, well, it'll be interesting to see how all these discussions will kind of impact the next step here for him that, that he's kind of hinted at in the past. Well, so I want to move on to our second instance of don't do as I say, um, that is out of the battleground congressional district in Fort Bend, where a Republican candidate in the primary runoff has sent out some interesting mailers. Um, Matthew, do you want to lay this one out for us? Sure. Yeah. So to set the kind of background here, um, you know, the uh, there are a lot of questions right now about voting in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, a lot of questions about how mail-in voting kind of applies to that, um, whether kind of who has traditionally been eligible to um, to submit a mail-in ballot should kind of be expanded uh, in an election where, you know, basically everyone is putting their health at risk by going and waiting in line to, to cast a ballot. If you, if you don't, if you're not immune to the coronavirus, then, then, you know, you have a legitimate reason to be concerned about going and stepping in line. Um, you know, the, um, this is as, uh, most other things has split along partisan lines with, uh, Democrats kind of pushing for an expansion of mail-in voting and Republicans raising concerns about the possibility of fraud. Um, you know, you heard you've heard Donald Trump come out and say this, you know, this would be a disaster for American democracy. Um, and uh, you, you know, had Ken Paxton reaching out or, you know, kind of publicly saying that uh, people who uh, advocate for or, or who tell voters that they might be eligible to vote um, via mail when they are not could be kind of opening themselves up to criminal prosecution. Which brings us to Kathleen Wall, who is uh, running in this Fort Bend County district. Um, and in April, sent out a mailer with the state seal on it, saying that voters had received the green light to vote by mail and that their applications would be right, arriving soon. Um, the mailer also said, I'm quoting here, recently the Texas Secretary of State ruled that voters' concerns over contracting or spreading the COVID-19 virus and endangering their health by visiting a public polling place meet the election law requirements to be deemed eligible to vote absentee. Um, whether that's true or not is a bit of a uh, dispute in the courts, but it is absolutely not true that the Secretary of State has said this, which, um, you know, when our reporter Patrick Spitek wrote this story, the Secretary of State pointed that out. Um, basically, what we have here is a Republican candidate aligned with Trump um, running in a runoff um kind of going completely against the party line. And it's a bit of an ironic episode as this kind of broader fight continues about who should be allowed to vote by mail. Yeah, I mean, it's the the irony of it. I just it's kind of even hard to quantify. I guess you can't never quantify irony. But I mean, the, the reality is that Paxton, who is fighting this both in the courts and, and kind of just like in the public opinion arena, he has on multiple occasions raised the prospect or the threat of criminal sanctions against any sort of, quote, third party who advises voters to apply for a mail-in ballot based on, you know, reasons he, that are sort of outside what's typically allowed in the state. And which is pretty much what Wall did here, right? I mean, it, it, there, 
it was his letters and messaging has been targeted at county officials who might be looking to kind of expand that and or are willing to accept that expansion. And instead, you have a Republican congressional candidate that, like you said, is aligned with Trump on this, who basically did what he warned people not to do. Yeah. And Patrick reached out to the attorney general's office uh, to ask, you know, are you guys doing anything about this? They didn't comment. They say it's kind of not their policy to, to comment on complaints or, or issues like this. Um, you know, you do kind of wonder how this would be handled if it was a Democrat who put out this mailer and, and whether there's been a response. I mean, you, you have seen in the past, you know, very vociferous, loud kind of ringing the alarm when when uh certain people candidates groups uh do something that uh, the attorney general's office believes kind of uh encourages fraud um and we we haven't quite seen this reaction at this point but it is kind of clear through the actions and the statements of the secretary of state that kind of the republican administration the the state leaders in this are are not pleased that wall kind of went out on this limb it's kind of a squeeze play in some ways. You know, it's a Republican runoff. And if you don't punish her for something that you've been punishing everybody else for, the opponent's going to look at it and say, well, why are you favoring her? And if you do punish her, she's going to say, why are you trying to change the election? So, you know, maybe that the attorney general just wants to not say anything until July 15th or 16th when this <laughs> runoff is out of the way. Yeah. I will say that, that this policy of not commenting on complaints of this sort is not actually you know, it doesn't equally apply. We know at least one instance last year when the Secretary of State's office sent a complaint to the AG's office or referred this issue of these supposed non-citizens that they had identified on the voter rolls. The AG's office was not shy about commenting on that. And obviously, we know now that most of those people were actually naturalized citizens and that the state messed up in the way it um, compiled that list. But they were pretty all over that and were pretty, you know, vocal and commenting on that front, at least. Yeah, this is highly situational. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do want to get a little bit into kind of the, the a broader check in on this sort of flurry of litigation on voting by mail. There are too many lawsuits even for me to keep track of, and I'm responsible for writing and reporting on them. But I have been thinking about, you know, we obviously the president is not providing a whole lot of political cover for Abbott and Paxton or other Republicans who want to expand absentee voting. But Republican officials in other states have at least been kind of parsing through the ways to do it in the context of the pandemic, right? Maybe not permanently, but at least during the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, but what do we think are kind of the politics at play here in Texas, knowing that, you know, we're kind of hearing the similar arguments that we hear uh, frequently from Republicans in terms of uh, claims of fraud, even though fraud in voting remains rare. But Given that what we've seen some movement in other states by Republican officials, what do we think, what are the politics here that are sort of creating this wall basically from the beginning to not expand voting by mail in any way and instead address the pandemic by expanding the early voting period, at least for the upcoming primary runoff? You know, the pandemic here is the new thing. The fight over vote by mail is an old thing. And you know, the, the combatants here were already divided into party lines well before there was a coronavirus. And the coronavirus is the pressing case. And the, the argument of people 
who've generally been favoring vote by mail up to now is, well, now we have a different situation. In other words, we have a new argument that's better than the argument that didn't work before. And the people who've been trying to stop the expansion of vote by mail are saying, yeah, but it's still full of fraud. So the, the arguments are sort of pre-existing conditions you know, to the pandemic. The pandemic raises the stakes, though, because you do have the prospect of if you don't have vote by mail or some other system where you can vote without showing up, you have to show up. And showing up is how you communicate this disease from one person to another. I mean, one of the things that I find interesting about this is that the general kind of political assumptions around issues like vote by mail are, you know, and the same thing with online registration and, and same day registration and, and various other kind of uh, efforts that um, certain groups, you know, civil rights groups in particular are pushing to kind of make it easier to vote is the, the kind of common belief that like in Texas in particular, but elsewhere as well, that uh you know, high turnout in a lot of times is going to help Democrats. The um, In this situation with this virus, I do wonder about how this affects that kind of discussion, you know, because um, come November, I mean, you look at like the polling around uh, support for um, among the um, older Americans for how Trump is handling the coronavirus. And, and you're seeing it's it's. Uh, you know, even among kind of Republicans that that support for Trump is down, you know, because this is in a way like the group that is in large part the most worried about this virus. And like, how does that affect, you know, things in November if we're still in this type of situation where, you know, uh, a demographic that's that's very important to Republicans um, is worried about getting to the polls and does that change the calculus at all in, in anyone's mind about, like, how this all kind of breaks down? Um, do the worries about fraud change at all if if you're worried that your voters are going to be too scared to go out and, and cast a vote for you? Remains to be seen. A lot of the voters you're talking about already can vote uh, by mail. True. You know, if you're over 65, that's one of the ways in. Um, you're letting a bunch of people potentially here who can't vote by mail vote by mail. Um, and I guess the, the fear is the same fear that we've seen expressed in, in other non-pandemic times. As you said, anytime you liberalize voting standards, make it easier to register, easier to vote, easier to, you know, you have more places to vote, all of those kinds of things. Um, the fear of people in office is always that you're going to change the way that they got into office in a way that prevents them from coming back. So there's always, you know, you always have to overcome the incumbents. And the incumbents here are all Republicans. The, the one thing that I do think will be interesting to, to track is, you know, the governor this week basically doubled the amount of early voting for the upcoming runoff, citing, you know, the that compliance with the sort of typical shorter truncated window that is typical for runoffs wouldn't be enough to ensure health and safety of voters and poll workers. You know, and I think if do, that was easy to do in some ways for a runoff because you're just going from five to 10 days, right? Or I think it's 10 days that we end up with. But if you're thinking about that for November and kind of thinking about the resurgence of the virus that's expected then, even if, you know, efforts to contain it are successful now, that would mean for a huge, huge expansion of early voting. And I think it'll be interesting to see once we get closer to November whether that's something the governor is willing to do using kind of the same arguments that he did for these runoffs. 
All right. Well, before we go on, we've got two more sponsors we've got to go to. Waters and Kraus. There's a reason lawyers refer tough cases to us. We fight industry giants on behalf of individuals daily. We're Waters and Kraus. More at waterskraus.com. And the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern is proud to support alumnus and Texas Tribune founder Evan Smith in his mission to promote civic engagement and public policy discourse through quality journalism. So we've got just a couple of minutes left. I wanted to get to kind of part one million in Texas versus locals that we saw um, just yesterday, I believe it was. Um, Emma, tell us a little bit about this Paxton letter that went out to the locals who were you know, still navigating Abbott's previous orders that basically preempted anything that they could do locally to close things or keep people home or help contain the virus. So kind of grappling with this ongoing question of how much can who do about trying to prevent the spread of the coronavirus and where, right? So the latest we have is from the governor who said he's ended the statewide stay-at-home order and he has a few executive orders, you know, certain businesses are allowed to open. um, And he's made clear that his orders at the statewide level supersede any orders that are um, issued by local officials, right? So if I say X for the state of Texas, you can't say Y for the city of Austin. And now we're kind of starting to see local officials, at least in Austin, Travis County, um, San Antonio Bear County, and Dallas County, test the limits of that, right? So they argue that the governor has said, for example, um, you can't require people wear masks, you can't issue a, a penalty, and the, a lot of the local orders are saying, well, you shall wear a mask, but there's no civil or criminal penalty. And so Paxton, the news yesterday was Paxton writing to um, officials in those three cities I mentioned and saying, basically, your orders go too far. You're trying to do more than what the governor has allowed you to do. And the local officials almost immediately shot back and said, actually, you know, we designed these to comply with the governor's orders and you're stirring up a false political controversy. So that is the latest on on that question. Well, you also have El Paso asking to get out, right? You've got a bunch of officials. uh, It did not include the mayor. It did include the county judge, but um, basically saying uh, we've got unique local situations here. Uh, Governor, please set us free. And that's been the ongoing question of this, right? This was the question in the beginning when a lot of people did want Abbott to issue a statewide stay-at-home order. And he said, look, the situation is different across the state. I don't want to do that. Now he said, okay, the situation is looking better overall across the state. I'm not going to do the statewide stay-at-home order, but he's not giving local officials the room they had in the very beginning to kind of make these tailored recommendations or requirements for their own cities. And, um, you know, Alexa has been reporting on some of the problems with the meatpacking plants in the Panhandle. Obviously, we know from El Paso to Houston to, you know, parts of West Texas where there aren't many cases, there are different situations. And I think we're just going to see more of this, right? Local officials kind of testing the water saying, let me run my city the way my city needs to be run. And we'll see what the response is from the state. All right. Well, we are actually out of time. Too bad we spent so many of it joking about our haircuts. Sorry about that. As always, <laughs> thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, Texas A&M University, Feeding Texas, Waters and Kraus, and the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. On behalf of Emma, Matthew, and Ross, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. Do I have to tell you? Do I have to tell you?